Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How are you doing? Hey. Hello. Hello. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi, my name is Simon Brooks, and I am the host of Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts, and folk and fairy tales from our elders, a meeting with professional storytellers. I decided to travel around the country, and actually to the UK when I could, to interview some of the elders in our community of traditional storytelling. People who, for their work, travel about telling myths and legends, folk and fairy tales. Each storyteller I sat down with shares their thoughts on our profession and gems and wisdom, and sometimes a story or two. I am glad that you're here. I heard of Taffy Thomas years ago. He is a legend in British folklore and one of the nicest people I have met, both Taffy and his wife, Chrissy. Aidan, my son, and I flew to the UK in March before the coronavirus was a big issue. Before it was even a small issue, really. We had gloves, wipes and sanitizer just in case, for a few reasons, the main one being that my mum has only one and a half lungs and emphysema, and I did not want her to get sick. Also, my dad was not doing too well, so we were being extra careful. Our first stop, though, was with Taffy Thomas. Straight from the airport, after a six-whatever-plus-hour flight, up to the Lake District in northern England. We were there for two days and spent a lot of it with Taffy and Chrissy. They are great people. Taffy was the first ever storytelling laureate in England. My understanding is that a few people thought that in the UK we had a, a children's laureate, a poet laureate, and that Taffy should be the storytelling laureate. So they created the position for him. He tells a slightly different story, but I like mine more. I thought Aidan would go and explore after the first cup of tea, and there were many cups of tea but he stayed and said it was one of his favourite parts of the trip. So right now, imagine me and my 20-year-old son, tired, getting jet-lagged, and these two wonderful people, complete strangers to us, and us complete strangers to them, who let them into, let us into their home to interview them. Here is the remarkable Taffy Thomas. You have done an awful lot in your life. You've been a teacher, a fire-eater, an escapologist. Yeah. And you've been a fisherman, and some of these jobs have had some real danger in them. Did you, wh when did you feel that you were most in peril? Probably some of the audiences I've met since I became <laughs> a performer, but it's probably the best answer. <laughs> I actually was performing on a really, really rough uh, uh, community centre over on the west of Cumbria, where they had motorcycle speedway, and they had uh, it was a. I mean, it went all right, but it was. It was a sort of performance which was nil nil at half time, <laughs> and a, a close win at full time. There were two celebrities there that day. I was, a storytelling celebrity, but also, uh, the Australian star, visiting star of the. Uh, the Workington Motorcycle Speedway team oh. was there and he came up to me at the end and he said, do you know, he said, I go around that track at as close to 100 miles an hour as I can do sideways, but I reckon what you do is more dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> That's very, that was very noble of me. It was, yeah. But I like the ones that are a challenge because, I mean, I hope... I have a, my repertoire is deep enough and my experience strong enough that um, I can win people over at the end, either with stories or engaging them with a riddle is my always my way in. You don't get the story unless you've solved a riddle. And Simon and his son Aidan have had a number of riddles to solve today before they got a story. <laughs> we were thrust upon riddles upon riddles you started storytelling when you had your stroke is that right well I had some stories before then because uh, even when I was teaching I had started a a tiny theatre group called Magic Lantern who illustrated folk songs and stories using shadow puppets so some of the stories I told then were the shadow puppets providing the visuals 
I still tell. So I had a couple of stories there, but I then became a fire eater because Magic Lantern had to perform at festivals in the daytime and the Shadow Puppets only worked with either a full blackout or a partial blackout. So I developed a very English style of street circus, something my son continues to do now with his street theatre company, the Chipolatas. And uh, <laughs> and my, my group after Magic Lantern was the Salami Brothers. So my son would tell you he comes from a long line of sausages. <laughs> I like that. Right? Yeah. Anyway, so uh, I had some stories then, but then when I had the stroke, which was which was when I was pedalling three clowns up a hill on a tricycle in a fairly remote Lancashire village called Rossendale, I was on the pavement waiting for an ambulance and. Uh, when I started to fight back from the stroke, where I couldn't walk, I couldn't talk, I couldn't use a knife and fork, had no speech for three months, I used the storytelling to learn to speak again, because it helped me shape my thoughts into words. And also, traditional stories have a great structure. And it's that shape and structure that have been smashed by my brain damage. I knew what I wanted to say, but somehow, the words either just wouldn't come out or wouldn't come out in the order I wanted them to. Or they'd come out slurred. How long, how long did it take you to get full full recovery back with your with your voice? Um, probably a uh, couple of years to what I would consider now to be. In fact, I had some speech within three months, but to a level where I was prepared to stand up in front of a, an audience or a group of people, it would have been a year, really. Well, <coughs> but you, but you come back and you perform and you... I've done more now, but that is thanks. I mean, I had a wonderful, phys a wonderful physio specialised in stroke damage, but I also had my wife and my children behind me uh, with the appropriate mixture of encouragement and bullying. It, it what you need, because, I yeah, mean... Yeah. I mean, I could have just sat in a chair and dribbled, but um, basically uh, the children and Chrissy, my wife, there's no way they were going to put up with that. You know, <laughs> we knew we had to work at it together. Yeah. The physio said to me, you can work hard, harder than you've ever worked in your whole life. And if you do work that hard and you're lucky, one day you'll walk out of here. Or you can sit in bed or in a chair and dribble. And if you do that, you'll sit there and dribble for the rest of your days. So I looked over to Chris and my wife and she squeezed my hand. And we knew we were going to go for it. Yeah. And she gave up her work very generously as a dance teacher and choreographer. She had a little studio. And we decided we'd do it together. And thankfully... We've made a fist of it, and we've been able to travel the world as storytellers now. Yeah. And you also had a lot of, you, you were telling me earlier before we started recording, you told me that there was a lot of support from the community. Of, yeah, as well, the folk well. scene over here were wonderful, because I did a load of the folk festivals, and it was at the time of Live Aid, and they started a fund called Taff Aid, and the money that they raised for me there we use for speech therapy and Alexander technique and uh, that certainly all helped me. It's, it's an amazing community that, that does that. Mm, yeah, I mean, so we people you, cared. Yeah. I, mean, I was 35 and uh, I mean the thing that they didn't tell me, when I meet stroke survivors now they say what weren't you told that would have been useful? The main thing I wasn't told was that I would have good days and bad days. Now, some days then were so bad, it was better actually just to go back to bed and accept the following day wouldn't be as bad. Mm -hmm. And uh, some days it's worth fighting that badness. But people say, what now would happen 
if I've got a performance day, a gig day, and it's a bad day? Well, it never is, because the best drug yeah. for stroke recovery is adrenaline, you know? Oh, really? Yeah. And if I've got the adrenaline of a performance, a mixture of adrenaline, vanity, and survival <laughs> instinct sees me through those days. <laughs> no, the one I used to use when... Uh, trying to stay awake when driving this is before I've given up driving which I have now I did drive for a while after the stroke but now that I'm 70 years old it's time not to be doing it because my advancing age has collided with my stroke damage really to make things worse I would stop the car get out of the car and imagine I was being chased by a mad axe man and run 100 metres down the road, stop, turn and run back, and he's almost caught me, jump into the car, and I could get another two hours driving after that. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting technique, I like that. Um, you met Ruth Tung, is that true? That's right, when I was a boy, even before, even before Magic Lantern, I was taken down by somebody who knew Ruth Tung to her little cottage uh, in Somerset, which was my home area, and got to talk to her and have a cup of tea with her and then she said well Mr Thomas I'd better tell you a story and uh, she told me several stories in quite broad Somerset dialect but that is the voice that I grew up with of my mother who was born on the Somerset farm and my grandparents so do you think you got your, because um, you collect a lot of your stories already. Well, I made a decision right from the beginning that uh, wherever possible, I would collect my stories from people, uh, not from books. Or I do occasionally use Guru Google, now if I'm stuck for a particular subject, right. to internet, but uh, wherever possible, people. And I was lucky then that so many of the old traditional performers um, a lot older than me were still around so during other than Ruth Tongue I had the pleasure of meeting Duncan Williamson and in the USA Ray Hicks and a Cornish fisherman called Tommy Morrissey but to get his stories I had to go and work for him for a year for a whole year yeah he said Taffy before, said before he told your story um, he was in the last year of his time as a fisherman and he didn't have a crew man and he'd been through most of the fishing families in Padstow in Cornwall when the sons reached a certain age they said you go and work a year with Tommy you'll get you'll learn your seamanship but they would all come home in tears because he was a tough taskmaster I mean the thing I most remember is when I worked for him if we didn't catch anything, if we came home with nothing, it was my fault. But if we came home loaded to the gunnels with fish, it was nothing to do with anything I'd done at all. <laughs> yeah. Because that's the way it is. Yeah. And also Seamus Ennis in Ireland, the piper. I had a wonderful uh, time meeting him on tour in his last year before he died. And Betsy White another Scots, one of Scotland's travelling people. She became a mentor to me, really. Wow. Betsy was a witness at our wedding. She just sat outside the wedding and told stories, and everybody said, who is that wonderful woman? So I was blessed, really. So blessed that I now do a show called Ancestral Voices, uh -huh. where I have a flip-up, a push-up display of archive photos of each of those people I've named to you, Ruth, Tommy, Seamus and Betsy. And for the show, I talk about my meeting with those people uh -huh. and then tell the story that they gave me, wow. or one of the stories they gave me. And then finish it by saying, well, if you tell a story standing behind you, the ghosts of all the people who've ever told that story before you right. and I've just introduced you to some of my ghosts
Yeah. Maybe thought it won't be too long now I've reached 70. Hopefully a while yet before I'm the ghost behind some of the other people who've heard me telling stories. And that way the tradition will carry on. Because true immortality is that somebody can tell your stories after you're dead and gone. Yeah, that's a true statement. Yeah, I hope you're around for a lot longer. I'm hoping so. I'm feeling pretty good at the moment. So. Yeah. I want to hear you tell a lot more. Um, sometimes I think that it it, it 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 is or can be the things which break us that make us. Uh, mm. Do you think that's true with the with the stroke that you had? I think what doesn't break you break you only makes you stronger. Yeah. yeah. But I never thought I'd reach the point where I could view the stroke as a positive experience. But I do now because if you think. When I was a street theatre performer, I was fire-eating, I danced on broken glass, and I lay between two chairs and had somebody smash a two-foot square paving stone across my body. Now, that's all very well when you're young. That's true. <laughs> as an old man, it would somehow... Uh, not feel appropriate to be yes. earning my living that way but as my son once said to me you know what you're going to be when you grow old dad I said what's that Sam he said the silly old so and so in the corner of a bar who people buy drinks to tell them a story oh, I say yes and what's wrong with that yeah right <laughs> I feel the same way that's great so I haven't seen your story coat yet in person but I've seen pictures of it hmm? um it's a complete and amazing work of art, and I. You know about three hundred stories. Something like that. Something yeah. like that. How many stories are on the coat? Because just for our listeners that, that may not know this, t tell us about the coat. The first. coat is um, when I was uh, one of the first really really big jobs I did when I got back storytelling fully recovered from the stroke was at a garden festival in the northeast of England and that was in 1990 and within the festival site there was a craft house and local craftspeople had an exhibition and amongst the things exhibited there were some wonderful uh, um, works of textile art by an artist called Paddy Killer who's actually from Yorkshire but has a studio in Newcastle in the northeast of England and she liked to come and hear a story for me and I loved her work and because I play with language I had the idea of having a tail coat T-A-L-E as opposed to T-A-I-L which is the one you'd wear to a posh wedding mm -hmm. so a T-A-L-E coat so I told Paddy one day I would like if possible her to make me the tail coat and uh, I think 25 years ago now Chrissy managed to get the Arts Council and a Lottery Arts Project to fund the making of my tail coat which took two years to make and cost four and a half thousand pounds Wow! it's a beautiful uh, piece of art but it's a piece of art that's actually worn rather than hung on a wall and it's functional because when I wear it somebody from the audience comes out and whichever image they point to on the coat that's the story I tell usually to finish the show which is great except for the fact you have no idea which story you're going to be telling so preparing is a little bit tricky and I did have a time when at ten past nine in the morning in a school uh -huh when I had a slightly thick head, but that's another story. <laughs> Somebody chose a picture from the coat that I hadn't done for eight and a half years. Mm. And that fairly sharpened me up and got me going, I can <laughs> tell you. But um, So where did they find it? Was it tucked under the collar or something? No, it was there. <laughs> there are it's just an echidna. It's just an echidna. And because yeah, that's yeah. an Australian echidna, yeah. story, an Aboriginal story, it's not one I find myself telling very often over here right. because very often if somebody here 
in the UK chooses it. They think it's a hedgehog, so I'll tell a hedgehog story. Oh, okay. But on this day, he was sharp enough uh, with his knowledge of flora and fauna to pick it as an echidna, so I didn't want to let him down. So I had to think up a story with an echidna in it. Wow. But we managed it. You did? There are favourites, aren't there? There are favourites. If storytellers choose a story from the coat, they tend to think, now which of these pictures don't I have a story about in my repertoire? They're thinking, because I'm generous and want to pass it on. So storytellers. But if they're people who are just random friends of mine, because they like a bit of fun, and they know I'm up for a bit of fun, they think, now which one might catch him out <laughs> <laughs> so that's a bit I think the owl is chosen yeah probably the owl is chosen more than any other yeah. I think and I, luckily I have two or three oh, owl yeah. stories monkey too and I mean having some of the images have more than one story which is essential because there are one or two of the stories on there that are 20 or 25 minutes long and if it's the last story of a set yeah, you don't really know and I've only got five minutes yeah, left. Right. It's good to be able to switch to a shorter one. Yeah. Have you ever met, have you ever looked for stories to fit the coat? And not now. I people say, What if you get a new story? And I'm like, well I tell the new one before I put the coat on. So if I, if I when I add to my repertoire now they won't be on the coat because the coat's right, right, right. a complete piece of art, and we couldn't afford did, if to ask Paddy to. Says there should always be space for another story. This yeah. is true. Yeah. Unless I start wearing storytelling boxer shorts. <laughs> 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 and then you get your adrenaline rush. <laughs> get arrested. <laughs> yeah, I think some of the stories have three or four. Yeah. Versions of them. Yeah. So we. Uh, so, like a bird story might happen in the winter. Um, I I work very seasonally mm. from having the storyteller's garden in Grasmere as a venue. I tend to think seasonally. So to that extent, I'm a bit like uh, a clergyman or a member of the church who have who operate very very seasonally. And it was a local vicar who actually said that to me. Hmm. You are just, your year runs round the same as ours. The whole of October, you'll be telling Halloween stories. The whole of December, you'll be telling Christmas stories. And as soon as the sun comes out in the summer, you'll likely be telling outdoors. I mean, I like which stories I choose to tell in the first part of the set are very often dictated by things that I see perhaps even on the journey to the venue if I'm performing like last week on the drive to where we were going a pheasant flew across in front of me and I just turned to Chrissy who was at the wheel and said that's it I'm going to tell the poacher's grave tonight which is a a ghost story about a poacher a person who steals pheasants from a farmer to feed his family right that's so cool it saves saves working out a set there is that there is that but it's not that because what what you have to remember is that you've been preparing the the sets for 50 years yes (laughs) so yeah yeah but you're still adding to your still adding to the stories very much so Yeah. yeah And not just from old people like myself. I mean, I mean, people know I particularly collect riddles and riddle stories. So very often children will arrive at the school show and, and at the end, if I can leave space for question and answer, the children will say, can we ask you a riddle? Please do. I mean... The child, the most amazing thing that little child. Most amazing. Normally, with question and answer in schools, I'll go for uh, 
juniors, sort of uh, 10 years old plus, right. or seniors, don't usually go for early years, the the three to seven-year-olds, because... <laughs> yeah. But I was at a school in Liverpool, and the early years group, at the end of the show, their teacher said, can the children ask you some questions? questions? They've prepared <laughs> some for you. So, well, they don't normally do it for little ones like this. And this little lad who was, I think he was five or six, said, Taffy, he said, I've got a question for you. Why do you give away all of your stories? And I thought, that's the best question <laughs> I've ever been asked. And I said, because if I give somebody a story, this is the challenge to you, Simon, the chances are, They'll give me one in exchange. So that day ends with me knowing one more story than I did at the start of the day. Or this goes back to when I would come home from being away performing. This was before, no, when I was capable of driving myself and doing it on my own. These days, it's Chrissy and I together. But there was a short spell when I could do some bookings and she'd be at home with the children. And I'd get home and my own children would say, have you got a bedtime story? And I've already told stories for like four hours or something that day. But then I would think, no, the cobbler's children go barefoot. <laughs> I have got a story. But of course, they needed one they'd not heard before my own children. And as they grew up coming to my shows, I'd have a story yeah. every bedtime. So I need to add to my repertoire for them. And now that's repeated for my grandchildren. I have right. a 10 year old and a four year old grandchild. They're in Australia and they want a riddle or a story on Skype. So we still managed to keep that going. That's excellent, that's so cool. And the 10 year old's become <laughs> the 10 year old Ona, O-N-A, because she's Catalan. And that is Catalan for ocean wave, Ona, O-N-A. She is the storyteller in her school. Yeah. And when they do a school performance at the end of term or whatever, she always gets given the job of being the narrator or the storyteller. Really? She loves it. And if we go to Australia to see her, we have to go into her school and, and at the end, the teacher says, everybody say thank you and goodbye to Honours grandfather. And all the children at the whole school say, Goodbye, Grandad! <laughs> and then the following day, I'm in walking through the town, and it's the end of school, and all these children were being picked up by their parents. They see me on the other side of the road, they all go, Hello, Grandad! And all the other people walking up the street are going, My God, how many grandchildren have you got? ridiculous <laughs> well, that's, that's got to fill your heart it yeah. does it's great yeah I'm the luckiest man in the world yeah. I tell stories that I enjoy telling to people like you that I enjoy meeting yeah. and I shall keep doing it for as long as I'm able when I hit my 70th birthday the local newspaper said Taffy are you going to retire when are you going to retire when are you going to retire and I looked him in the eye and said when they shut the lid of the box, then out of mischief, I said, and maybe not even then. Yeah, there you go. He said, is that your last ghost story? I said, it might be. Well, the, the upshot of that was that we were in a school where Taffy had been years, well, we'd been together so years before, um, and it was an important day. And uh, the children who'd been there then were just going to be old enough to leave the school that coming year. So they were the big ones uh -huh. and the little ones were coming to hear stories for the first time and they were all telling them about Taffy you know and they, we know him because he's been before and all of this and then this little one she went she came up and Taffy pinch said me. She pinch she, me she really hard her friend really? And, she went, and I went ow and she went he's real he actually he's real <laughs> no way that's so funny he's it real so funny <laughs> I think that's given me the, ti the title of the autobiography if I write it. Yeah. He's real. <laughs> this little girl said, said to me, uh, the friend, said, oh, he's going to tell us stories. I said, I know. 
And she said, how old is he? And I said, oh, he's 150. Yeah. <laughs> she went, he's 150 to her friend and her friends. Don't be so stupid. He's 150, he's only 99. <laughs> <laughs> Which was worse. Yeah, I sometimes tell kids, like, How old are you? I say 154 yeah. or some ridiculous yeah. whatever comes into my head at the time. Yeah, yeah. And we, yeah, we were in a Liverpool Catholic school once, and all all the girls, they all looked like. Come on now. Pop singer who sadly died, Amy. With oh, Amy, Whitehouse. Amy Whitehouse with the tattoos and the comb back hair. Yeah. And he said, Chrissy, Chrissy, how long have you been with him? And she said, oh, about 30 years. And she said, 30 years? I can't go out with the same lad for 30 days. <laughs> <laughs> but they keep me young. <laughs> so you, in 2001, you were awarded the MBE, a member of the British Empire. Mm. How did how did that come around? Well, and what was what was your well basically emotional feeling about that? Uh, well, uh, well, it's uh, the those awards, although they're called Member of the British Empire or whatever, or Order of the British Empire, they are the only system that we have here of awards where people whose who you've whose life you've enriched in some way can write in and say, I want this person to be made something, given something special, thank you. Oh. So the people who uh, contacted um, the awards, I mean, found it online, were various organisations that I'd done charity performances for, or actually some of the American storytellers that actually wrote in and said, Taffy's not somebody wrote in Taffy is not a national treasure he's a world treasure yeah I would agree somebody with said yeah. and I was delighted with it. so then you get a letter through the post that says would you be prepared to accept it and at that point it's very rare, at that point we weren't um, engaged in any particularly embarrassing war that I was prepared that I felt ashamed of and I thought no, so people have actually want to say thank you to me, so yeah. I should accept it with grace. Yeah. So it's like the RNLI, the Royal Life Lifeboat Institution. The Heart Association. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The um, Veterans, because we've done the war stories for them. Wow. The Storytellers uh, Association. It was loads. It's of people, people who we've yeah. sort of yeah. helped to do what they want to do. It's just their way of saying thank you. Yeah. So of course they don't always choose. Loads of people write in for people they right, think right. have an inspiration, but they don't always choose them. So you never think you I decide, and then the letter comes and to ask if you're prepared to accept it. I mean, some people at various points have turned it down, but Martin Carthy, who I've already indicated in this interview, I hugely admire, who grew up um, probably far more political, uh, both with a large P and a small P than me, just came to the same conclusion that it was a thank you for yeah. what he's given. And, 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 and I sort of If you say no, it's kind of like they've gone to all that effort. Right. To, you know. So I didn't realise what the so process Oh. Yeah. So that's it. Yeah. Being, I'm shown a picture of the Queen with Taki Thomas. And I wore my tailcoat. Well, uh, because some children, when they heard I was going to get this award, said, if you're going to meet the Queen, wear the coat. Yeah. They said, I wonder which story she'll choose. <laughs> Did you ask her? Well, she was too busy to choose a story on that day, on, on the awards day. But um, uh, the Duchess of Cornwall, Prince Charles' She's wife, has chosen the owl from the coat on yeah. another really? occasion. Yeah. And but the um, Queen just smiled and said, that's a remarkable garment. <laughs> and I said, yes, ma'am. The children have said... If I'm coming to meet you, I should wear it. So we'll thank them very much and keep telling the stories. Nice. Oh. So she knew, but we had to write and ask permission for me to wear the coat rather yeah. than wearing a. Uh, Tottenham. Yeah. yeah, we d you did it. And uh, the well, Queen's yeah. uh, equerry, uh, 
Thomas. But it was Richard Luce. So Richard Luce had been the chairman of the Arts Council. So, he knew so he'd known did. about the tailcoat from oh, okay. when the funds had been raised for it. And he said, well, the military personnel who come wear their working clothes. Right. Yeah. That's your working clothes. So I suggest you wear it. I think Her Majesty will really like it. Yeah. So. And the thing was, we had to, we went in, because they have lots of things happen, garden parties and things, that people are asked, especially for something they've done to go, but an award ceremony is where you actually go through the gates, you know, like the whole thing. Really? Yeah, it's proper. Oh, so the person we were with on that day with other ones, a Chinese scientist, but also Liam Neeson was the one with Taffy and people like that. You know, so in, in the, so in like, the waiting I mean, area, it's a massive, it's a people thing. were coming up and asking <coughs> about the coat as I was wearing. You know, people who were... Mate, this Chinese scientist had invented something, didn't he? <laughs> and he said, when I was a boy, I used to go to like the tea house in China. <laughs> he did. And there would be storytellers so, there. So I think it's... When you were shot? When he was... When he was, oh, oh, when he was honoured oh, oh. with right. tapping. Yeah, so he, he was in the same thing, waiting to go in. Yeah. They sit in the... And the Liam Neeson, of course, being Irish and the Irish... And it's in the throne. Uh, uh, yeah. Always so. held that storytellers in high esteem. Yeah. was really interested. And when we came out... I mean, there was some very, very good... I mean, the paparazzi are there taking photos for the press. There's quite a large photo of me wearing the tailcoat no, and a tiny photo of Liam Neeson. <laughs> he laughed. And that meant my, uh, <laughs> my sister and my, and my niece and nephew said, I bet Liam Neeson's agent is absolutely furious <laughs> with Uncle David, <laughs> which is my real name, no, David. Not really. That's funny. And tell me about the the storytelling laureate because there was no storytelling laureate before. Four hundred no, four hundred years ago there was a poet laureate, and right. it was Lord Byron. Yeah. Right. And then about twenty or. So getting on so for twenty five years ago now, they then. they decided they would have a children's laureate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then when a group of librarians, and particularly librarians, people working in children's literacy, decided there should be a storyteller laureate. Yeah, they had a choice about whether they went for one of the uh, perform more performance storytellers, people from a theatrical background. Mm -hmm or somebody was close to a living oral tradition. And because I've, I've explained, I made it my business that I would learn my stories from the oral tradition, from people who are still alive to pass them on. I was invited to be the first, and being the first laureate for storytelling, I should always be the first laureate for storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a nice one. It was an honor, but a huge responsibility because it then meant I felt I had to be a spokesperson for this tradition, even for performances where there wasn't going to be a proper fee available. So it didn't right, right. actually increase my income, but it, nothing that I've done over the years has been motivated by a desire for money or even common sense. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Actually gets awarded something like a, is it a, a, a barrel of sack it used no, to be, which is like sherry. sherry. Oh yeah. really? Um, or every month for a year. I mean, this it goes back. But to they also yeah. they also you have you don't, an agent. They, don't do it for money. they have an agent who arranges them a lot of and bookings. Quite a lot of them. Quite well. Quite a lot of them. Well. Taffy was given okay. when he became. Quite a lot of um, the poet laureates' bookings are quite yeah. well paid. We had to organise our own timetable for we that. We had an administrator for that, that we had who organised two or three so years. So we just had to, to do it. But if somebody from one of the big universities wanted somebody to speak or be on a panel talking about the oral traditional storytelling, that I would feel that I had to do it, you know, right. to represent. So we would make ourselves do it, you mm. know, go, mm. whatever. Right. We were asked to do that year. And the list is on the website. It's massive. So I was given. They're, they're there. I'm j I've just given it to yeah. Simon. Do, do you want me to read them? Yeah. Why don't you read it? It starts yeah. right there where my finger is. Mm. You probably know that because it's your book. <laughs> I was given seven special gifts to carry with me when I was undertaking my official engagements as storyteller. 
a one kilogram bag of dried beans. Obviously, the reference there. Jack. Yes. Jack, yeah. <laughs> a simple compass to, to make sure I didn't get lost <laughs> or to help me find my way home. One of the two. Maybe that's the, a reference to Tolkien. A pack yes. yeah. yes. packet of love hearts. Now, they're a very old fashioned sweet that comes in the shape of a heart with a saying. Oh, and they all have words on them. In the middle. Oh, the the word. Word. Clear glass yeah. bottle. I think that will be for carrying water to drink because birds can't sing without seed, you know. Right. Storytellers can't tell without water. water. Yeah. Or here, where I live in the Lake District. It's tea. Yes. It's my favourite piece of local dialect here in the Lake District is that tea is called chatter water. Chatter water? is water. Oh. And chatter is speaking. Right, so, so if you drink the tea, it makes you loose your tongue and tell the stories. Wow. Yeah. And, and everybody used to say, well, chatter is, it's, uh, you know, because Wordsworth used to rhyme words with, with water. Yeah. as pronounced water so he did a poem that said matter da 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 water and they went mad and they when said he went, that's not a true rhyme he He's said where, are, where I'm from it's in the water. Lake District it's a true he rhyme said, no yeah. for me Patter it's and a water. true rhyme Patter for me it's yeah. water yeah. <laughs> carrying on my seven gifts I also was given a tall white candle mm -hmm. so I could tell stories in the dark and a silver lucky charm which, we've which was a showman's caravan it's a bracelet kind of thing. Isn't yeah, it? like yeah. a bracelet with a, yeah. uh, a caravan on it and a whistle to get order, although usually <laughs> my lungs are strong enough to get order. The official patrons and guardians of the story include the Liverpool poet Brian Patton and Michael Rosen, the poet, broadcaster and former children's laureate. Yeah, Storyteller sure Peter well. Chand, Simon Thirsk, who is... Uh, a publisher okay. is the chairman of Blood Axe Books oh, and Del Reed, the national director of storytelling. He set up um, of the National Week, national director of storytelling week, and Patsy Heap, who's the director of children's services and libraries in Birmingham. That's a massive. Oh, that's our neck of the woods. So, <laughs> oh, it tastes so bad. <laughs> oh, it does. It does. Beautiful, beautiful library. Well, my college days were at Dudley, Dudley College of Teacher Training College, Dudley yeah. College of yeah, Education. You teacher yeah. training there, didn't you? Yeah, near the zoo in, in Dudley. <laughs> is the zoo still there? Yeah. It is? Day so bad. Oh. <laughs> and as they say in the black country, stay out of the os road. Yeah. Stay out of the horse road. <laughs> os road, yeah, there you go. That's amazing that, I like, Brian Patton is one of my favourite poets, oh, yeah. like the, the Liverpudlian poets. I've yeah. met Roger McGough a couple of times. I actually stalked him once, but we won't talk about yeah. it. Oh. We, we met Roger McGough once, and <laughs> we, we, th this was another another brush with the royal family. When the Queen had a jubilee, mm -hmm. she had an, an event... For artists. At, really? um, uh, at the National Gallery. At the National um, Gallery in London, and I was invited <coughs> as one of the representatives of this county. From each county. Could you talk up a bit more? And I got we got there we got there to the National Gallery and going up the stairs the first person I met well the first person I met on the stairs actually was Brian May from, from oh, Queen, Queen. Yeah. yeah yeah and he realised I was nervous because it was we were minor artists it's not, not the sort of not the sort of league I normally meeting meeting the Royal Camp and then oh, top of the stairs I met Roger McGough and I said Roger what are we what? doing <laughs> I said, no, but it's good to meet somebody I know. So we had a drink and a chat. And at the end, the trouble was, the whole of that night, it was it was champagne. And they just came up and kept topping your glass up. So you had no idea how much you'd drunk. Whereas if it had been, it was normally, you you, you know. So at the end of the night, there's, rod, and there's steps all the way down to the road from the National Gallery. And previous events there, that is the ones the paparazzi are always at the bottom to, to, to catch the photos of, the paper. <laughs> you know, of falling, yeah. down. falling down the stairs, celebrities falling. So, so Roger is there, and we looked at each other. We just 
linked arms and helped each other <laughs> down the stairs. <laughs> really? I mean, having started, but what the heck are we doing here? We finished with helping each other to a taxi. <laughs> yeah, he's a really gracious guy. Right? He was smashing. Yeah, yeah. he's a really, really enjoyed guy. him. Yeah. How many how many gigs do you do a year? Do you think? Well, we used to do. I mean, there was there was no there was one. Four thousand miles a year. Thirty-four thousand miles a year. Yeah. Driving, yeah. Driving. Wow. And which we is. We don't a, do anything like that now. And yeah. there was one year when I did over three hundred gigs a year. There was one year where you did something. And, and you know why they're yeah, called yeah. gigs, don't you? Because I mean, or classical music performance, rock performance, everybody calls it a gig. Right. But do you know why they're called gigs? No. I'll tell you. Sam Sherry, an old musical artist, told me this, and I have no reason to believe it. It's not true. In the, de- the early days of variety and music hall, an artist could earn a living by performing in three venues in a night. At the first venue, he'd open the bill. Second venue, he'd do the spot up to the interval. Mm. And in the third venue, he'd be top of the bill, finish the night. And he would travel between these tiny theatres and a pony and trap, or a gig, gig yeah. or a gig. So the minute you walked out of the stage door, and climbed into the pony and trap, you were doing a gig. Right. The gig to the next venue. Wow. You were doing your gig. I always wondered about that. So there we are. And I've told orchestral musicians that, and I've told rock musicians that, and nobody knows, but Sam told me that. It's a good story. And he was a tap dancer and clog dancer. Well, he was a musical artist. Musical artist, the five sherry boys, fiddles, frolics, and fun. (laughs) And you catch them online, some archive film. They actually... Uh, Clog danced and played fiddle at the same time. And did somersaults. (laughs) Get on, next time you're bored (laughs) online, have a look, look up the five sherry boys and see them in action. Were they drinking a lot of sherry before they did that? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Probably not, right? (laughs) I think they probably needed to to be completely clean and fit to do that. Yeah. The other one you haven't talked about is doing the proms. We had to you do did the proms? proms? Yeah, yeah. When we had the nightmare of foot and mouth here, here. yeah, at the end of that, uh, somebody came up with a project called Linking Town and Country. We're a school here in the Lake District and a school in the middle of Manchester. We get together and uh, and a composer and they asked me as the storyteller to do it. Basically, they were looking for a new Peter and the Wolf. So they wanted a story that the composer could then turn into a piece of music music. that would be performed at the the proms at the Royal Albert Hall. So I created a story for them, Lincoln Town and Country, and the children from the Manchester School came up to the lakes for a day, and the lakes children went down to the Science Museum in Manchester and and the uh, composer arranged for there be some little bits that they could play within, within the piece the with piece. the full orchestra. Yeah. Oh really? So they all had little and they, lovely and they did it as the bl- mentioned the lake it And they did it as the Blue Peter yeah. prom. So it's the Blue Peter prom. So I got my yeah. Blue Peter badge yeah. and do it. Yeah. I did it. No way. It's on oh, my I'm desk. So <laughs> and, uh, it's very funny, the Blue Peter badge <laughs> I was it was an amazing day. But Biddy Baxter, who yeah. created Blue Peter, was at the same college I was at when oh, I was she at was? University. Durham University. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's so, funny. Yeah. But but the the thing was, we were doing this show, and this fantastic. We had three months of rehearsals down at, at the BBC Studios for three oh, months, nice. once a week. And I don't um, read music. You and see. so the so the conductor wonderful guy and I can't remember which country goes to Rumon Gamba is his name maybe mm. Hungarian I don't know anyway, brilliant conductor I and said he, I, so you'll have the music so you'll know when so to come in with the spoken bits because it's because Taffy said this is, this is these are my words but they won't always be the same you know yeah. because I'm a storyteller and they said no they have to be the same because it has to fit in the counts yeah. of the music yeah. Yeah. and Taffy's going I don't, I don't read music and he was going 
He was absolutely like... Your voice like, is an instrument, so when I point to you <laughs> with a baton, you speak. I'm going to go it. like that, you You're stop. No, well. so, so that was all sorted. All we rehearsed it in, in Manchester in the... With the BBC Philharmonic. In, wow. in their rehearsal room. There we are. And what happened was that when we, we got to the... To the uh, Royal, Albert, Royal Albert Hall. You get one rehearsal so, actually in the venue. Yeah. Uh-huh. That the day that's literally be... uh, quickly, you know, because and all your mics are set up, mm. the orchestra's mics, mm. and they said we've got a special. We've never ever had a voice, a story speaking. Voice, They'd never done a spoken tally, word you know. thing. Oh, so wow. we've created a spot where Taffy has to stand. <clears throat> we'll pick up his voice amongst the music, you know. So he must be there. Is there a recording of this? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, play, play, yes, yeah. we've got it. Yeah. Yeah. And and um, and so we got there, and Rim and Gabby said, "Yes, we're going to be fine." And all the promenaders stand down there, and there's all the five thousand people, whatever. And and he said, um, uh, "Right, okay, so let's get started." So we go into this rehearsal room. And Room and Gamba is stood in front of the orchestra, you know, everything. And Taffy's in front of Room and Gamba, and he can't see him at all. So he's got yeah. to do this without being brought in. So the he's composer just, sat cross-legged in front of the promenaders. <laughs> the actual composer came in and went, oh, I'll bring you in, because this is but ridiculous. It was, but it was a really, was really terrifying. tough one for the... Uh, uh, never been so terrifying. The composer who wrote the piece, obviously a really big deal for him, having a piece at the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah, right. And in the run-up to it, his father died. Yeah. So he, he couldn't, he said, what do I do? Yeah. And I said, what you do, Barry? I said, we do it. And in your head, it's dedicated to his memory. Yes, yeah. yeah. for him. Yeah. And if you like, I'll even say that. You know. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful, the piece as well, yeah. So... And so when we came off stage at the end, he just... Taffy literally co- ran off the stage. I got as quickly he as I could. His coat and well, you're here, at the, you're here at the end of recording. I shot up. Normally then, I'm there. And then it all goes quiet because Blue Peter Prom is, is usually, you know, it's the second biggest prom because yeah. it's family. So they, they, were expect, they expect to sort of have what they've heard before. And they'd never heard anything like this. It was completely new. And there's this silence. And Tuffy's sort of like... And then there's... And he's thinking, they didn't like it. And then there was this thunderous... I oh, mean, deafening applause, you know. Yeah. And they were shoving him back. back I had to go on out and have a yeah. bow. And yeah. I came off and Barry just ran up to me and just burst into tears yeah. in my arms because he'd not managed to grieve. So. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it, it, was. Was it was. That must have been hard for him. It was really hard. hard. Yeah. And he said, well, Barry, we did it, and we did it for him. That's all I could say. He said, that helps. Yeah. <laughs> I read that cricket is a, a sport of choice. Yeah, I love cricket. It's, it's right up there with baseball as being one of the most boring sports. <laughs> Nonsense. Nonsense. <laughs> 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 so did you, you play cricket, I, I assume. A bit. I was well, yeah. Well, this goes back to pick daisies. When I was, this goes back to the other thing that made me a performer at all, is I was at an all boys grammar school, a very minor uh, grammar school in Yeovil called Yeovil Grammar School, which no longer exists. When I was eight, I was diagnosed with a heart murmur. A narrow aortic valve, oh, which valve. is what actually led to my stroke. Some, oh wow, uh, what can I thirty uh, thirty odd years oh, right. later, you know. So I wasn't so I wasn't allowed to do energetic sport. So I was an all boys school with a fascist sports <laughs> teacher, and who was convinced when I wrote a letter and said I couldn't do it that I was skiving. Yeah. Anyway, we got our karma on him, but I'll tell but you that. But in, in a nice, he's a nice man. So you? unable to do to do energetic sports, I did had to do something else. So I turned to the arts, and well, I could play cr- cricket, which because I could pace myself for that, and because uh, as you say, it's fairly slow moving. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> <laughs> and I also did Morris dancing and uh, yeah. the, folk the, singing. The, the, Hang on, you, you 
can't play sports, but you can this do is Morris what, dancing. This is what I said. This mm. is what I said. But this is like you kill people with Morris dancing. And uh, uh, exactly. The and only people who die from Morris dancing are too old to be doing it anyway. <laughs> It's, it's a natural culling of crap Morris does. <laughs> well, basically, because it was in Somerset... I'm now going to get hate mail from every American Morris dance group that's got somebody over the age of 60 no. in. You set up... So Taffy set up a, a Morris dance team in the school because his friends were a, a folk group called the Yetis, who were very famous. Called the Yetis because they were from Yetminster in oh. Dorset. And, um, okay. and they mm. were really popular. And basically, they ended up um, uh, teaching him to, to get and, to do Morris and dancing. And got me going to Yeovil yeah. Folk Club, which was in a pub. And uh, Aidan went all about this. I was technically too young to be going to this pub, but I still went. Yeah. Now, to go to the folk club, to get in free... You either had to perform or do the door. Okay. Right. Sometimes I performed, sang a song, or told a story. I mean, my singing voice is the one thing that didn't come back after the stroke, my ability to pitch. You used to sing. Yeah. But, so I did the door, and I love telling you this as an American. I was doing the door once, and this gentleman turned up, in a gabardine mac very short gentleman with a guitar and I said half crown to get in he said but I'm Paul Simon I'm the guest artist he said I don't care half a crown <laughs> this is before he was and he there. said if I don't come in there's no show <laughs> well I don't know who you are <laughs> it was his first visit to England, Paul really? Simon, and I charged him to get into the club where he was the guest <laughs> artist. <laughs> yes! And how much did the club pay him? Was 15, it pounds. £15 they paid. We oh. paid him, he was charging £15 a night on that tour. That was probably good money back then, though. It was. Yeah, and he stayed, mind you, he had a bit of luck because he stayed with Martin Carthy up in Yorkshire, and Martin Carthy sang him. Scarborough Fair oh. <laughs> as a folk song and so yeah. he, so he, he took, took that away including Martin's guitar arrangements for yeah. it but, oh, he really? did, but he did but he did thank him yeah he did thank him on stage somewhere wasn't it was yeah because hmm. <laughs> yeah, that made him yeah, yeah. absolutely did yeah, yeah. Them. and so some of the other things that he learned with Martin's other folk songs Girl from the North Country oh that was Bob Dylan when Dylan uh, stayed oh no there. that was when Bob Dylan Bob stayed Dylan heard Girl heard Lord uh, Franklin's. Um, yeah, Lord Franklin's dream. Yeah. And, well, well. <laughs> and and he took it and made it into Girl from the North Country. So those all those yeah. old folk songs yeah. informed all of that era of. I dreamed a dream and I heard it true concerning Lord Franklin and his gallant yeah. ship's crew, which is all about Lord Franklin and them trying to find the Northwest Passage, mm. because oh. Bob Dylan had it as and Bob Dylan's he, dream. I dreamed a dream and I thought it sad concerning myself and the first few friends I ever had. Yeah, it's exactly the same. Well, driving and on a train going west, I fell asleep to take my rest. I dreamed a dream and I thought it sad considering my son, concerning myself and the first few friends I ever had. Wow, mm-hmm. that's quite interesting. It yeah. is. There's this whole background to yeah. the whole folk scene. Yeah, oh, yeah. it's huge. Yeah, it really is huge. I'm just now old enough to be that not so many people are remembering it. I, thankfully, I'm blessed with it. I, my memory is one of the things that survived the stroke. Shall I bring some more wood, Chris? Uh, just a couple. I hope you enjoyed our visit with Taffy as much as Aidan and I did. He has a number of great books out, I came home with an armful myself, which can be found on, yes, Amazon. Paperback, hardcover and Kindle editions. If you really want to support Taffy, then reverse shop. Look it up on Amazon and then get in touch with Taffy and buy it directly from him. It might cost a little more and it might take a little longer to get to you, but you will be supporting him and not Amazon. Anyway, off my horse. His website is taffythomas.co. UK. Taffy, T-A-F-F-Y, Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, 
www.lakedistrict.co.uk. And if you're in the UK, if you're in Britain, head up to the Lake District and visit the storytelling garden in Grasmere. Everybody knows about it. And across the street is the gingerbread house. And you can buy the best gingerbread in the whole world right there. There are no contenders with this place. It's amazing. Anyway, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. If you think I should interview certain folk and fairy tale myths and legends storytellers, then send me an email. You can find me and my work on Facebook, Simon Brooks Storyteller, and on my website, simonbrooksstoryteller.com, and on Instagram, Simon M. Brooks. Diamond Scree? Yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. A shout out to Chris Jed for creating and recording and letting me use the wonderful music for my podcast. His band is called Blackpool Mecca. Check them out. You can help me keep this podcast alive by becoming one of my Patreons and paying anything from a single dollar for an episode that you enjoyed or to a regular monthly subscription. And there are different levels. In return, you get extras, early release, exclusive content on my work. Go to patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. There's no Ian Brooks, if I haven't mentioned that before. If you cannot do that, then help me out by doing something you can do. I would love it, love it, love it, love it, love it, if you were able to leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you found this episode. It helps not just me, but others to find and enjoy this podcast also. Thanks again for being here with me. I really appreciate it. I know there are a lot of other places you could be. Until next time, be happy, be healthy, and share the stories that you love. Cheers. It's just a story. Just a story. <laughs> yeah. Simon out. <laughs>